across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The writing seems to be definitely on the wall, ladies and gentlemen. Matt Hancock yesterday confirmed what I've been saying for uh, quite a while, certainly since the weekend. This coronavirus is very much on the wane, and with the addition of the vaccine program's ever-increasing reach, it means that older and more vulnerable people are safer than ever. According to the Secretary of State for Health, the number of people over 80 being admitted to intensive care units has fallen to single figures. And now, more and more ministers and MPs are having the conversation about speeding up the roadmap to freedom just because uh, they now can. And I think it's the right thing to do. The only fly in the ointment, of course, is the release of these new variant scare stories. For me, the new variants are the new NHS is being overwhelmed. As long as there's a threat, Matt Hancock and the Sage Advisors will tell us all to cower indoors. It's still not safe. It's budget day tomorrow, though. We're kicking off today with Christine Jardine, Lib Dem MP for Edinburgh West, Treasury spokesman for the party as well. She might also have a thing or two to say about Nicola Sturgeon, uh, who has chosen tomorrow to make her appearance before uh, that sexual harassment committee up in Holyrood. 0344 499 1000. We'll also check in with our statistics expert, Jamie Jenkins. Dan Hodges is also going to join us with his take on what Rishi Sunak should be doing tomorrow. And, of course, he'll have something to say about what Peter Hitchens did over the course of the weekend. As ever, we need to hear from all of you as well. What are you seeing? What are you being told? And what are your friends doing? Yesterday, we heard that a lot of people are already planning uh, to return to work if they haven't done so already. Bosses at Canary Wharf are now suggesting March the 29th as the date people start coming back to work at their desks. 0344 499 1000. We'll bring the latest from the travel industry with Simon Calder, our favourite holiday guru. Nick Freeman joins us as well with a new campaign to stop people throwing litter out of their cars. What a very good idea that is. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Don't forget we are live streaming on YouTube and on Twitter, of course, as well. Uh, you can find us uh, on Twitter at Talk Radio, at IROMG. We've got some great stories for you today. We've got lots to talk about, many of you uh, to talk to as well. Let's kick things off, though, first up uh, with Christine Jardine, Lib Dem Treasury spokesperson, MP, of course, for Edinburgh West. Christine, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you doing? Very well indeed. Nice to see you. How are good. things going up in Edinburgh? Because it's a little bit of a hot spot at the moment. Uh, British politics seems to be focusing on it. If it wasn't for Budget Day, uh, everybody would be there doorstepping Nicola Sturgeon. Well, um, it's you know it brings a new meaning to you know taking out the trash team, and we're going to have the <laughs> you know the clash between the, the budget, which will be everybody's focus, because this is um, this this is a huge moment for mm. our economy and for our history and for people who've been through COVID-19. And at the same time in Scotland, we have um, competing with it, let's say, the um, the controversy that surrounds um, the Scottish government, Nicola Sturgeon and um, Alex Hammond and the SNP, the internal fighting which is going on within the SNP at a time when Frankly, they should be focusing on recovery first as well. Well, they really should. Let's kick off with the budget because, you know, yeah. technically speaking, as you say, that affects more people. Um, what are your uh, words of advice for Rishi Sunak? What do you want him to do? What do you don't want him to do? I want him to be bold, practical, creative and give us solutions for the million small businesses, um, the self-employed, freelance people in this country, families whose lives have been um, thrown into disarray by this 
COVID-19 crisis through no fault of their own. That's the thing. There are businesses up and down this country, small businesses that are the backbone of our economy, which are teetering now on the brink of collapse, which were successful. People had put decades of, of time, effort, money into it. And because they followed the government rules, they are now suffering. Mm. And the government needs tomorrow to say, we're going to help you, we're going to get you through this. And that, you know, this is a big moment for our country. This is, this is a once in a generation budget where the, the Chancellor has to set the course. We've seen all these knee-jerk reactions, the furlough scheme, you know, extending it bit by bit. We need it to go on to the end of next year and we need a strategy that business can plan for, that business can say. And when I say that, I'm not talking about just big businesses. I'm talking about your local high street yeah. shops, your florists, your dry cleaners, people whose lives have been invested in building yeah. those businesses, whose families' futures depend on it. I think you're absolutely right. And you're right to say it's a big moment because I, I agree with you. I think this is a massive moment for Rishi Sunak. It is a sort of career-defining moment for him. Yeah. But also it's a government-defining moment for Boris Johnson for getting this right. But did you actually say you wanted to see the furlough scheme extended until the end of next year? Because I'm I'm one of those who thinks the that we, we should be talking about releasing people from that and letting people get back to work. Because I'm not, you know, I said this last week and people got the wrong end of the stick. They thought I was saying, you know, whip the rug away and let people just fend for themselves. That's not what I mean. What I mean is no. give people the opportunity and the ability to open up their shops, to go back to work, to run the businesses that they run, to make the money that, that keeps them afloat and get them off the uh, the government sort of uh, uh, dependency. I think that's what we all want. That's what every business in the country wants. You know, I, I last week had to, um, I was out for a walk and I walked along our main street here in Kerstorfen in Edinburgh, which is I know it normal. well. Yeah, it's normally one of the most polluted roads um, in Scotland because it's it's a main thoroughfare in, in and out of Edinburgh. Yes. And the shops are all closed, apart from, you know, some of the cafes who are doing takeaway. The butcher's mm. shop, fortunately, was open and, you know, a co-op. Uh, but those businesses all want to reopen. Yeah. They want to get back out and they want to be making money. But, Mike, they're going to need help. And they're the backbone of our economy. And they need the Chancellor to step up and have a long-term plan. Now, some of them will be able to come back sooner without furlough, but furlough should be there if they need it for longer. Our economy shrank by yeah. you know, a kicking, you know, not a kicking the, the, the pants off 10% last year. Mm. That's a lot. And there's a lot to come back from. So we need we need real support. And what we need is a scheme like they've got in Germany, where you know, for up to six months. Um, a maximum of 80% for these small businesses that employ, you know, uh, fewer than 10 people to get them through this so that they can come out the other side. And let's make no mistake, there have been businesses that have made money in this. Um, you know, it, it's always the case. But they're the ones now who should face, you know, a tax which enables the small businesses to recover. The ones who followed the rules, done what the Chancellor said, don't have big online operations. Mm. But they need help now. And if that comes from taxing the ones who have done better in this, then more's the better. I think that's tricky, though, isn't it? Because you're also risking in that way, kind of penalising those who manage to make something work. Because, you know, there are many friends of mine uh, who have got businesses that haven't been able to operate. Others who have managed to pivot into doing something slightly different and have made money successfully having done that. Still suffering. Uh, and not making as much money, but you don't want to start penalising people who have been, you well, know, you agile enough in business to actually do all right. 
No, you absolutely don't. But what I'm talking about is that the massive companies who've made um, inflated profits in this because um, we've had to turn to them because the, the small companies that we would normally go to, the shop in the high street that we would normally get something from, we've had to go to you know an online giant to get mm. because it was the only option. Right. And you know, some of them were, were hearing you know profits for, for Amazon example have, have gone up you know about eighty percent in this. Now, if we're going to preserve our communities and people are going to have jobs, then we can't allow this sort of corporate consolidation to put small companies out of business. And the chancellor, if he stands up to, tomorrow and he protects our small businesses, he extends furlough and brings in all those people who've been excluded, all those self-employed people, company directors, um, you know, freelancers mm. who in the entertainment world, especially, who have found themselves with no support at all in yeah. this. And many many of whom as well, by the way, Christine, as I'm sure you know, have already paid tax on the money yeah. that they've earned. And they, ha I mean, at the very yeah. least, they should be getting a, a tax rebate, shouldn't they? Yeah, they should. Also, we want to see, you know, um, rates relief holidays, um, a VAT relief. We need to be thinking. He needs to be thinking out of the box. Mm. This is a crisis, the like of which we have never seen, uh, not just in our lifetimes, but our parents, grandparents, it's, you know, even, you know, the Second World War is the closest yeah. to it. And what we need tomorrow is for the Chancellor to stand up and say he's going to be big, he's going to be bold, he's going to put small businesses, the self-employed families who've suffered through this at the heart of what he does. Yes. And that is going to mean, perhaps for him, a step change away from what the Conservatives might normally do. Mm. But you know, I, I, you know, I hope he's, you know, listening not just to me but to other people who who are saying at this point, this is what we need. Mm. Well, the point is as well that he's fighting, as is Boris Johnson. We're led to believe these sage advisors, these people who, no matter how good the figures get, keep saying, "Well, you know, we have to be careful about not opening the economy too quickly." I mean, I really think they need to see a step change in that attitude as well, because clearly. Uh, looking at the numbers from that uh, briefing yesterday, you know, we are in a much better place than anybody ever thought we would be. Uh, and with the vaccine rollout going as well as it has been going, you know, if we're getting down to single figure admissions now for people over 80 going into ICU units, you know, that's remarkable. And surely now we can speed up slightly um, without putting anybody at risk this roadmap. The key there is without putting anybody at risk. We have to remember that, you know, most, you know, a lot of people have been vaccinated and, you know, I'm the first to say that they have done a good job, particularly in England. They've done a less good job in Scotland. But in England, um, there's been a fantastic rollout and it's been very successful. But um, even although it's 20 million people, there's, you know, if it gets to 30, 40, 50, we're still, there are people out there who are going to be vulnerable. Now, we've got the highest death toll in Europe. We've got the worst economic impact in Europe. We have to be careful. We are at a point where if we get this wrong, there's no coming back. Yeah, but, it's, yeah, but Christine, you cannot live for the rest of your life. You cannot live for the rest of your life, Christine, trying to protect everybody from all risk because you can't do it, can you? No, you can't. But what you can do is listen to the advice and how to minimise the risk and how to move forward. Well, let me put this to you, right? You've just said we've got the worst outcome uh, in Europe in terms of health and in terms of deaths. We've got the worst yeah. economic outcome. Why are we still listening to these people if this is their advice and the result of it? We haven't, unfortunately, we haven't always listened to their advice and we were too slow to follow it in the first place. I don't place. think that's I true at all. 
And I think I, there's well, already a question mark, that. isn't there? There's already a question mark as well about the numbers. So I'm not sure you can rely upon them. And quite frankly, I'd rather be living in Britain right now than the rest of Europe, uh, regardless of what you say about their economic recoveries, because they don't even have a vaccine properly rolled out yet. Well, let's not get into, you know, we do a bit, you know, an argument about Europe. I'm concerned about what we are doing. Well, you just said we were the worst Europe. performing country in Europe. So I think you brought Europe well, we into are. the conversation. Well, we're not well, when it comes to are. vaccines. Well, yes, we are doing well in vaccines. And I said that. And we are doing fantastically well in getting the vaccines rolled out. And AstraZeneca, particularly, have done very well to come up with the vaccine when they did. But... You know, there is a danger in thinking we've fixed this and been reckless and not listening to the advice and going out there. You know, we have to make international comparisons and see what are people doing better. Germany is doing more for its small businesses. Germany is helping its small businesses through this crisis. New Zealand has been fantastically successful in isolating the virus and protecting its country from it. We have to look at the advice where people have been successful and follow it. Yeah, but New Zealand locked itself completely down, Christine. Is that what you would have had this government do? Because I don't remember you telling them to. Well, if you look, well, eh? if you look at what New Zealand has done, well, do you know what? There were there were people who said at the time. Yeah, but you were one of them, though, were you? You didn't say. You didn't get up in the House of Commons and say, Boris Johnson, shut down this economy right now, close all the airports, shut all the ferries, shut all the ports, stop importing anything. But we're going to do what New Zealand did. What I said was follow the advice. And what and was the advice? advice? What I said was follow the advice. And several times in this, the advice has been that we needed. I called for a circuit breaker when the advice was to call for a circuit breaker. If we had done that, then perhaps we wouldn't have had the increase that we we had over Christmas and after Christmas. The important thing is that where we are, we mustn't risk, the Prime Minister said this, we mustn't risk going backwards. And now we see this new variant. Now, we've come a long way. We've improved the vaccine. Test and trace, we're trying to find this, the government tells us, trying to find this person who is out there and who they don't know where they are. But the risk is to the economy and to our health if we get it wrong. And that is why tomorrow I want to see the Chancellor come up with these bold proposals which put small businesses first. Think about the people who have lost the futures that they had planned. Yeah, but the people in small business, Christine, but but what the small businesses need, as you've agreed with me already, is to be able to to, to operate. That's what they need. They don't need to be given more government money to keep closed. They need to open up. And the only way you're going to get them to open up is to stop listening to these doom merchants who say, you know, don't cross the road, you might get run over. They need to be able to operate safely. And I think they would say that They can, but they can. Restaurants can operate safely. There's never been any evidence to suggest that people have caught COVID in restaurants. And yet, restaurants have been forced to make ridiculous amounts of outlay uh, for protective equipment. Uh, They've managed to get people into their restaurants sitting differently spaced from one another. They've done all the things they were asked to do. And then still they were shut. And they need to be able to open, surely. The number is coming down. And when... um... We, I th- personally, I think we opened up too, too soon over the summer, and we didn't, we didn't use the opportunity in the summer when the number was coming down to get on top of it and to allow businesses to operate more than they have done. We got it wrong. Well, the government got it wrong, but you know, we all, we all need to look at what happened and make sure that we don't go back into that spiral again because these very businesses cannot afford it. They're the heart of our economy, the heart of our communities, and we need to support them through this. And we need the Chancellor tomorrow 
to stand up and offer them a good strategy, a far-reaching strategy, something which will help the economy through this. I've got a great uh, tweet here, and I want, I, want to, I, want, I want to read it to you because I think it's quite funny. It's from Gary. I think you'll even find it funny. He says, I think uh, Mike Graham should be put in charge of trying to find this missing person with the Brazil variant. He's found a Lib, he's found a lib Dem and got them on talk radio. I thought they were extinct. <laughs> I think that's very good. Yeah. Now, listen, let's talk about the SNP because, I mean, you uh-huh. obviously as a unionist, um, I mean, I wouldn't say schadenfreude is how you're feeling, but certainly, I mean, it's quite remarkable how not only has Nicola Sturgeon kind of turned Scotland into a one-party state, but has now turned that one-party state against her. And the the polling now shows that uh, even less people want independence than they did three weeks ago. Yeah, Um, I think um, think what we're seeing is... um, the same sort of sentiment, obviously in Scotland as in the rest of the UK, which is that people want their politicians to focus on recovery first, getting us out of this, getting the economy back on track, making it safe, as you say, for people to open up their businesses and make money again. That's what people want. And what they're seeing in the SNP is this internal fighting about almost everything, it seems, at the moment. Um, and this, you know, they're arguing. MPs are arguing with one another on Twitter, um, which you know has never happened before, as far as I'm aware. No. Of the SNP, and you know, and Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon at the inquiry, and the questions about how the Scottish government handled accusations, and you know, people are beginning to question what exactly has gone on in the SNP government, how it's managed, mm. how it's run, and it's creating. This kind of, in, in my column this week, I likened it to, it's as if they're, they're in a, some sort of vehicle hurtling down a hill out of control yeah. and they're taking the government of Scotland, they're taking the um, legal system, they're taking it with them. Um, and I think serious questions are now being asked about how um, Scotland has been run by the SNP. We have seen the impact on our education system in Scotland. Um, we have plummeted down. And on the um, healthcare system as well, let's face it. The healthcare system. There are big questions to be asked when we're out of this about the deaths in care homes Mm. in Scotland. Yes. There are big questions to be asked. And there are questions to be asked about various aspects of how the SNP government has dealt with this. But what we're seeing at the moment is the two big figures in the last 20 years in the SNP fighting it out um, about accusations and who knew what when, um, and it's not good. This is a time when the recovery should be the focus of all politicians' attention. And the other thing which is sad in this, um, and which a lot of people are upset about, is that regardless of the you know the court case and things I'm not going into, there are women who have been traumatised by a court case um, and, and accusations and now are going through it again. And they seem to have been forgotten in all mm. of this. I mean, one um, of the things, it, one of the criticisms I've heard as well is the way that the whole Lord Advocate setup operates and how the Lord Advocate as the head of the sort of judiciary is part of the government and therefore really is not in a position to investigate the government. Yeah, there are questions that have come up about um, the kind of um, SNP hegemony um, at the moment, and and one of them is what has happened to the Scottish 
uh, legal system is the Lord Advocate free to do? And that, that's what I meant by the Scottish legal system mm. being dragged into it. Yeah. Scottish legal system has been independent, should be independent. And again, it's about the way in which the SNP for the past 14 years has managed um, the running of Scotland mm. and their attitude to not just the legal system, but to all sort of quangos, government organisations. There's been this kind of fear of people not speaking out and you that's not good enough people should be independent and able to speak out and criticize the government um and we're seeing it now and we're seeing it in spades with mm. the with the smp um and you know it comes at a time when really um rather than this internal fighting the you know and their obsession with independence um that's not what people want. Mm. People want a government they can rely upon and who's focused on getting them out of this economic mire and putting that first. And there's just a feeling that in Scotland, that's not what we're getting. No. A lot of people are very resentful of being ordered about as well in the way that, that they are being. Final question, Christine, because we're running out of time. Yep. Does, does Nicola Sturgeon survive this, in your view? Um, I think um, we will we won't know that until we get um, to the, the end of the inquiry and its report and um, the Hamilton report comes in. Um, there are serious questions to be asked. Um, and a lot of people are talking about the fact at the moment in Scotland that the second person to be first minister was Henry McLeish of the Labour Party, who resigned over um, questions about paperwork, about his, I can't even remember now mm. the details of it, the rent in his office or something, he, he resigned. Yeah. Nicola has, if Nicola is found to have misled Parliament and if there are serious questions to be answered, then in all conscience, I think she will have to ask herself if she should resign because, and the legal advice that we see today, if the government was told that they, they couldn't win or they, they were unlikely to win this court case, and um, there are questions about whether or not they ignored legal advice. It's not a situation where you would think that she can continue to have the confidence of the Scottish public. Now, that's, you know, somebody once said that all political careers end in failure. You know, I would hope not. But I think there are serious questions to ask about what the Scottish government has been doing in this situation and um, whether or not they deserve the confidence going forward of the people of Scotland. Indeed. Christine Jardine, thank you very much indeed. Lib Dem Treasury spokesperson for uh, the party, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us now talk to James Miller, who's Operations Director at Adventure Island, which is uh, the UK's number one free admission fun park. It's in Southend uh, in Essex, and it's got something very interesting going on because it's the first place, as far as I know, in the UK that has made a statement uh, to wit, basically, uh, they will not be asking for people to have been vaccinated before they go into their park when it reopens. Let's find out from James precisely what uh, he means by that. James, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hello, good, good morning. Um, so j just to clarify on that statement, yeah. uh, the, the, the statement is, is made uh, to reassure, because we're, we're starting our recruitment campaign because we're opening in April mm. very soon, hopefully. Um, and the statement is to really reassure people uh, that actually um, we're going to be fair, open and uh, conduct freedom of choice in terms of uh, if you work here. There's been several things that we've noticed that has happened um, that, that we're not particularly content with um, in terms of the bullying nature of um, how people want to push 
the vaccine onto people. Um, the peer pressure that is taking place, um, which is which is completely wrong, um, and the invasion of privacy, and those, those sort of things are not compatible with the Adventure Island culture at all whatsoever. Mm. We, we, we won the Queen's Award um, just last year. And that's all about um, our, our culture and our leadership and bringing young people up. And, and th this is completely um, uh, against everything we stand for, to be honest with you. And I should just add that the owner of the company, uh, who is my, my dad, uh, took his jab the other day. So it's not that we're anti-vaxxers mm. or anything like that whatsoever. We wouldn't want to be seen to discouraging people to do it. We're saying that it's your body, it's your choice, uh, you do what you want to do. And it's not for us at all to get involved in that decision. So if you want a place uh, to work for like that, then, then, then we're your employer. And assuming that that would also apply to people visiting as well, because obviously people are concerned. A lot of people talk to me and ask me the question, you know, what if they bring in these vaccine passports? You can't go to a restaurant without one. You can't go to a concert without one. I mean, presumably you would not be asking people to show that they've been vaccinated to get into the park either. It's plainly wrong. It's completely wrong. Right? This is not the country that we are. And uh, I would say the feedback that we've had uh, off that off the post was, um, to be fair, we, we, we did expect some backlash uh, to a level, but mm. most people, um, I mean, you went out to almost 200,000 people, and most people are really positive uh, uh, about what we're, what we're doing. And actually, we're very proud of that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. We, we and so not... you should be, James. I think you're very well uh, 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 recognised for doing it because very few, I think you're the first company that I know of anyway that deals with the public that have actually come out and made this statement. So I, I, rec I recommend your park to everybody on that basis. <laughs> Thank you. Come down. We'll give you some wristbands. <laughs> I, get, I, know, I, might, I get sick on those kind of rides. I'm too old for that kind of thing. My kids might like it then. <laughs> Fine. Let me know. We'll sort it out. <laughs> no, but I mean, it is it is because people are very frightened of, of speaking out in this day and age because there is this kind of, particularly on social media, there can be bad reactions to this kind of thing. And you get these people wanting to boycott you and sort of, you know, try and get you cancelled and all of that. So it's, it's, Mike, uh, that's part of the inspiration to this. Right. Uh, the, the social media bullying is, is shameful, mm. to tell you the truth. There was one post that I saw. It tipped me over the edge, tipped us over the edge, where, where someone had written... If you're a healthy person and you do not take the vaccine, that's like parking in someone's disabled parking space. And I thought to myself, that's ridiculous, what isn't it? What is going on here? What sort of bully are you to write something like that? It's mm. disgraceful. Yeah. And um, we, we, we have about a thousand people at Adventure Island. And uh, believe me, uh, we, we would need to stop that type of mentality right at the start because it's nothing to do with, with, with what we're about at, at all. Right. And in terms of peer pressure as well, um, there, there, there's a person who works in an organisation uh, whose manager was constantly asking them, have you taken the vaccine? Have you taken the vaccine? Every single day. And right. I, I said to the person, do you want to take the vaccine? And they said no. Right. Uh, but over the course of uh, time, uh, they've, they, they, they've taken the vaccine. They didn't want to take it. And the peer pressure was ridiculous. So we are not saying don't take it. We're just saying it's unacceptable uh, for peer pressure to 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 be the guide towards what someone does with their own body. Yeah, absolutely right. Finally, James, we're just out of time here. How's the business been coping generally since the lockdown began last year? We've battled and fought to 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 survive. Uh, my dad, um, he, he will not be beaten, and um, the lockdown, despite the capacity, we had to have a vastly reduced capacity. 
um, yeah, we, 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 we did, we did well. We, um, the VAT um, five, going down to 5% has been enormously helpful. Mm. I will say mm. that. And really that's a must for that to continue. Um, but overall, it, we probably spent about 250,000 pound upward uh, in all our COVID secure measures that we put in place uh, during the park uh, this year. And we will continue to make it COVID safe this year. So uh, we right. can't wait to invite people down to Southend. Great stuff. And the opening date, James? We we think hopefully it'll be April the seventeenth. Okay. Um, that, that's the Saturday, and uh, we just can't wait to 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 welcome people back, welcome our staff back, um, because the, the nation is is desperate to let off steam, and uh, we're ready to help them do that and have some fun. Brilliant stuff, James. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed, and and well done uh, for taking that stand because I think it's important uh, that companies do it, and it's more important that more companies do it as well because it is. Uh, a matter of freedom in this country uh, and I don't say uh, anything different to what James says. It's not a question of telling people what to do, it's a question of letting people decide what to do. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us say a very good morning to Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday, a man I haven't spoken to since we did the head-to-head actually with Peter Hitchens. Dan, very good morning to you. Morning to you. It uh, looks as though um, you finally beat Peter Hitchens into submission, it would seem. Absolutely. I think it was obviously <laughs> after our debate that Peter <laughs> finally realised he had to he had to fold his cards and, and, and depart the field gracefully. Isn't it ridiculous how much a sort of uh, sort of abuse has been aimed at him, though, isn't it? Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand that. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I tweeted about this a couple of days ago. I mean. Obviously, Peter and I disagreed fundamentally on many of the issues relating to COVID. But one thing that I would say is that I, I, there wasn't any point where Peter was what I would call an anti-vaxxer. I mean, Not at all. Never, um, articulated a case that people shouldn't have the vaccine. Um, I mean, he, he did question whether or not the, the, the vaccine was you know, been approved to be a game changer. I mean, I would argue it, it, it is and it is proving to be he, he, a different view. But... I, the, the idea that, you know, and he was completely open. He said he had the vaccine because he believes there are going to be vaccine passports introduced for international travel and wanted to have the ability to travel to see members of his family, which seems to me a perfectly rational position and a position perfectly consistent with the, the positions he'd, he'd adopted throughout throughout this, you know, the course of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and equally, um, you know, for those people who say they object to being told to have the vaccine, uh, to suddenly turn into people who don't like other people having it uh, is rather ironic, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, I do. I mean, I think it it, it is indicative of um, the, the nature of some of those who were who were sort of uh, aligned themselves with Peter and Peter's arguments, mm. or maybe Peter aligned himself with them and their arguments. I mean, I did say during our debate and have said consistently that I, I thought there was an element of denial in in, in terms of. What some of the locked, what I call the lockdown deniers, the positions they were adopting, and I think there's an element of of this in the attacks on Peter. I mean, you you know, you can criticise Peter Hitchens for a lot of things, but you can't criticise him, in my view, for for not being a, a staunch opponent of lockdown and the government's lockdown stra- strategy. But that doesn't seem to be enough for some of his more um, some of more the more zealous 
anti-lockdown advocates. Yeah, although you did accuse him of one or two things during that debate, which he hadn't actually said. For, for example, you kind of aligned him up with people who had said that Boris Johnson was, there was some kind of conspiracy around Boris Johnson. And he kept asking you not to use the phrase COVID denier and you kept using it rather like Boris does about the Scottish nationalists. Well, I kept using the phrase lockdown denier and I, I you know, I'll keep using the phrase lockdown denier in, in, in relation to the conspiracy theories. What I was simply saying to Peter was that, that Peter was putting forward an argument that there were that there was there was some it was possible to question the, the, the figures in relation to deaths, the figures in relation to infections, the figures in, in relation to hospitalizations here but not just here, but around the world. And I was merely pointing out, if you want to question the the, the validity of the of, of the figures we're being given here, you then, to believe that that is then being replicated around the world, you have to believe that's part of a grand conspiracy theory. Well, I'm, I'm not going to speak for him because I, I would never certainly never be as bold as to do that. But as far as where we are now, Dan, um, I mean, you said on that uh, debate that the lockdown was clearly working. I mean, the fact, I suppose, that the NHS is now been dropped down from level five to level four, it's no longer in danger of being overwhelmed, would suggest that, that, that your lockdown argument is right. But now the reason why we're in a better place than we were ever before is because of the vaccine, not because of the lockdown, right? Well, I think it's a combination of two. I mean, the argument of, about lockdown, obviously, was it was always important to have the lockdown, to buy the space and the time to enable people to get vaccinated, to save lives while people were vaccinated, and then to be able to unlock in a sustainable way. As I said, that, you know, in relation, this is where Peter and I did differ on the vaccine. Peter was very clear. He didn't, he said he didn't think the vaccine, or there was, didn't think there was evidence of the vaccine was a game changer. I mean, there's clear evidence the vaccine is going to be um, a game changer. I mean, I think the question now is we're now getting to the point where the vaccine is proving so successful that the debate is going to shift to whether or not we have to stick to the very rigid timetable for unlocking that Boris set out um, earlier. Well, it's last month now, isn't it? So I, th- I think he's going to be under a lot of pressure to move up that particular programme because I think as we get through this uh, this month and as the numbers fall even further, um, if we're now down to single figures of, of people over 80 becoming uh, put, getting put into ICUs um, and that starts to dwindle down to hardly anything at all, they're going to be under, I think, a lot more pressure, aren't they, to, to open up things earlier? I think, that, I think you're absolutely right, yeah. I mean, I think if we get to the situation where as soon as we get to the point where the figures are significantly below where they were before we approached, if you like, the, the, the circuit breaker lockdown, second lockdown, November lockdown. Once they get, we get significantly below below that point. Once the figures drop, I don't know, below you know a couple of thousand cases a day. Once it's quite clear that there is there is now vast extra additional capacity within the health service compared to what we saw at the peak. And once we see and have evidence that the vaccination program is continuing as effectively as it is, I think you're right. I think that the pressure, I actually think the pressure will be irresistible. I don't think it will be politically sustainable at that point for Boris to hold the line all the way through the summer. And and on that, that brings us nicely to Rishi Sunak and the budget tomorrow. Um, You've given a few opinions uh, uh, out there on Twitter. Tell us what you think he must do and what he must not do. Well, 
let me just say, I, I've not, I can't remember a more bizarre run-in, if you like, to a budget in, in, in my lifetime. Mm. I mean, I, I would make no claim to be, to be any great economist, but it, it seems fundamentally obvious to anyone, regardless of your political persu- persuasion, that the, not the number one priority, the only issue for the government, the only priority for the, for the government at this immediate point in the economic cycle is to safeguard and sustain the economic recovery. We are still a nation in lockdown. We, you and I have just been discussing what we think and hope will be a pathway out of lockdown. As the Prime Minister and his ministers have all said, there is, however, at this stage, no guarantee we will, we will travel that pathway to the length and speed that we currently hope we will. We all know what the economic impact of lockdown has been on the country, on businesses. No one disputes that. So the idea that you would be even contemplating raising taxes in any significant way at this precise moment in time, I think is bizarre. Even the Labour Party, you know, Keir Keir Starmer has been, I mean, as ever, he started flip-flopping a little bit, but Mm. certainly in the first part of, sort of certainly last week in the first part of this week, he was being clear that he also opposes raising taxes at this point. So for Rishi Sunak to be even contemplating trailing introducing the possibility of raising taxes in any significant way at the moment, I, I, I just don't understand it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense economically. But we do know, do we not, that there are people in government who are so out of touch with, with regular people and ordinary people on the street that they'll be sitting in their little offices, no doubt, or working from home in the Treasury Department saying, well, we're going to have to find some method of persuading people that we need to get this money back somehow. We can't just keep giving it away without showing them that in some way, shape or form, they'll have to wait for the payback. But but this is what I don't understand. I mean, that is a perfectly legitimate and, and, and fiscally responsible position to adopt. At some point, we are going to have to pay down the deficit in a, in a, in a eradicate the deficit. And we are going to have to, at some point, start to pay down the debt. That is that's an eco, that's a, a, an economic reality. What I don't understand, though, is the timing. You, you there is no it's no one has, has has yet explained to me why it is absolutely essential we begin to eradicate the deficit now at this point in time rather than simply wait for a few months see the extent to which we exit lockdown see what the what the economic rebound is from that everybody seems to think there will be an economic rebound the only question is is how significant it will be yeah. Once we can see the economy is recovering, if at that point you believe tax rises are an important component of of the fiscal package necessary to eradicate the deficit and start to pay down the debt, fine. At that point, you can can start to do that. But why put the recovery at risk before the recovery has even started? Mm. I I just don't understand it. I haven't, and I, I, I literally, I haven't heard a a, a rationale for it from anyone for that. No, because there isn't one. I don't think anyone with any brains would try and make that case because it's clearly damaging to people, as you say, uh, to penalise them before anything's actually happened, before anything's actually recovered. But what? But might he not do this kind of... Might he do his own version of a roadmap and say, you know, uh, starting in April of 2022, this is going to happen? He, he may well do that. I mean, obviously, a lot of what we... I mean, it's not speculation. What people have been reporting is what they've been briefed by people within mm. government. 
but obviously we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. I there are two things that I that I don't again I don't understand though. I mean, some people have been saying there's another rational possible explanation. He's been he's been presenting this narrative tax tax rises tax rises tax rises. If he stands up and doesn't raise taxes, everyone's going to be saying fantastic and patting Rishi on the back. There may be that logic. Another rationale has been that he needs to provide reassurance for the financial markets. But those two rationale don't don't align because the markets have been seeing the sort of briefing we've been seeing. So if Rishi Sunak stands up in the budget tomorrow and doesn't raise taxes, then the financial markets will take a very clear signal from that as well. They will take the signal that, that Rishi Sunak wanted to raise taxes, but didn't have the political space to do so. So I don't understand the rationale. Again, as I say, I don't understand the rationale on that, that purely economic level. And the idea that we'll all say, oh, fantastic. We thought he was going to raise taxes, but he, but he hasn't. Well, the only reason he'll get patted on the back for that is because he raised the prospect himself. Right. I, I mean, think anybody seriously even thought anyone would be contemplating raising taxes at, the, at this moment in time in the midst of the, the coronavirus yeah, crisis. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm quite surprised they're even having a budget. I mean, I know they've kicked it down the road already, but I'm surprised they haven't come out with some reason to postpone it again uh, and wait until, you know, we're in a clearer position uh, to open up the economy because he's obviously the guy that wants to open up the economy, but he's going to be slightly hamstrung because the schools go back next week and you know what's going to happen. You know, Boris Johnson's going to be up saying that, as he's already predicted, um, you know, infection rates will rise because that's an inevitability of doing anything which undoes the lockdown. So I'm slightly concerned that they might use the, um, you know, the testing and the results of the testing of all the school kids twice a week. Uh, and they might turn that into some reason why we have to still go slowly. I mean, I don't, I mean, this is, again is probably where we disagree. I mean, I, I, I know from speaking in, speaking to people in government, they are firstly, they are, are absolutely adamant that the, the timetable Boris set out has to be adhered to at a minimum. Mm. That is the minimum pace at which unlocking it, it should, should be proceeded with. Uh, that's the view of people, people in government. Now, as I say, I think the political reality will be, we'll have to, un, we'll have to unlock uh sooner i think i think i think that's where we'll, we'll end up yeah but where I, I i completely agree with with you about this why rishi sunak is trying to look into the crystal ball at the moment whereas you say by by june july we'll start we'll start to know at least we'll know where we are in terms of the unlocking program several months after that we'll be able to judge the extent to which the economy the economy rebounds and the, and and also if it is required some great sort of fiscal intervention is required from, from government after that then there's absolutely nothing nothing to stop him coming back and saying right we're going to have an emergency budget yeah. and I'm going to introduce measure x y and z right well that would seem to be rational wouldn't it i mean because in a way there's a lot he can't do tomorrow because he simply doesn't know what the circumstances are going to be no exactly i mean we don't know i mean also we don't know how people are going to react to unlocking. My own view is when it unlocks, we will all be so relieved. We'll be storming out. We'll be storming out to the restaurants. We'll be storming out to the pubs. We'll be storming out to the shops. 
you know, we'll be having, it'll be like the 1920s all over again. It, you know, everyone will be so relieved that lockdown is over. We'll, all well, have a well hopefully not with a crash at the end of the decade. <laughs> well, exactly, or, or, or a war. But, I mean, the we don't know that. People could still be nervous. People could still be scared. People could be scared of the vaccine returning. People could be, could be, could be scared of lockdown returning. They could be thinking they need to, they, they could be scared of an economic impact again. People may like actually getting into in, in, into the habit of staying home a bit more and saving money a bit more. We don't know any of this. Mm. So why roll the dice on it at this moment in the, as I say, at this moment in the economic cycle? As, it just doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. Let me ask you about a, a tweet you put out a little bit earlier today about um, Joe Biden cancelling Dr. Seuss. Um, because I, I looked at it and I saw that uh, he's now decided that Dr. Seuss is some kind of racist. I wasn't sure if you were in agreement with that or not, really. No, I mean, I was, I, I, I mean, I was because I, you know, tweeted again about this, this whole Mr. Potato Head Ferrari yes. from, from last week. And I was just pointing out as somebody, again, who, despite what my critics may say, still has a vestiges, I still feel I have vestiges of liberalism lurking somewhere within me. Just pointing out that you know, if you ca- if you want to cancel Mr. Pa- Potato Head, fine. If you want to cancel Dr. Zeus, fine. But understand, there is going to be a reaction to that. There's going to be a backlash against that. And the people who cancelled Dr. Zeus and the people who cancelled uh, Mr. Potato Head are the first people who turn around in in shock and horror when a Donald Trump turns up or a Donald Trump gets elected. And I was merely pointing out, if you want to do this stuff, fine. But don't be surprised if if there's a reaction. And I was saying, as somebody who's not a particularly big fan of Donald Trump, I'd rather stick with Mr. Potato Head and I'd rather stick with Dr. Zeus to make sure we don't have a, a, a return of Donald Trump. And also, I think there is some rational reason as well for being critical of these kinds of decisions because it's, they're plainly idiotic. You know, Mr. Potato Head is a toy character. He's, you know, he's in Toy Story. He can take his nose off and put it in his ear. You know, why are we even talking about what gender he is? Well, but the, I mean, I, I would actually go further. I would actually say that the key thing about Mr. Potato Head is Mr. Potato Head is Mr. Potato Head, right? So if it's, and, and this is what gets me, if it's, if you deem it is significant and important enough that you have to move against Mr. Potato Head, right? right. And you have to decide that he has to be part of a more g- gendering in, in, in inclusive brand, fine. The fact that you think it's significant enough that you have to actually take the action, it shouldn't then surprise you if there are a large group of people who also think that it's significant enough that they want to. Have, that there should be a reaction. Yeah. The same with Dr. Zeus. If you think Dr. Zeus is so culturally significant that his, but that he is significantly insufficiently inclusive, that he has to be banned. Fine, but you have to understand. He is also, therefore, going to be culturally significant to to, to another large group of people yeah. as well. So you can't have it both ways, and you can't simply say, "Oh, well, it's only a toy, or it's only a children's book." Mm. If it matters enough to cancel them, it will matter enough to people that they're not cancelled. Exactly. But unfortunately, the the arguments on both sides are so ridiculous that they shouldn't really even be being had. That's my point as well. That you know, the idea that you have to defend Mr. Potato Head's gender is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, but, 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 but also, I mean, the, the issue about Mr. Potato Head, though, was this is the thing that gets me. It's quite clear it was a row that was engineered by the toy company mm. who were trying to get some publicity for their 
for their new for their new range or yeah. or the, the point is nobody needs all this at the moment. You know, we've got enough going on. We need exactly. we need a Mr. Potato Head row, like we need a hole in the Mr. Potato Head. You know, it, <laughs> right. no one needs it. No one needs it. It's true. Very true. Dan, well, listen, uh, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thanks very much indeed. Dan Hodges there from the Mail on Sunday, uh, making absolute sense, actually, of this whole ridiculous nonsense about pe- people like Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, who apparently has now been cancelled, right, by Joe Biden. Boring Joe Biden, because apparently uh, the cat in the hat might be a bit racist. Really? Are you serious? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, author, commentator, also known, of course, as Mr Loophole, uh, because he's got a great idea, uh, a campaign that I think we could all get behind, telling people to stop throwing litter out of their cars. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for yeah, joining us. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, just, just telling people not to throw litter out of the car isn't doing the job. There's uh, about two million pieces of litter every day that are thrown out. And Maystone Council have now um, planned to get hold of some cameras. They're called litter cams. Mm. And what they're going to do is they're going to record people who throw the cameras out. And there's a proposal. The proposal was to increase the financial penalty um, from about 90 to 120 pounds. Um, and in my view, that, that that's woefully inadequate. I think it is to be applauded that actually something's now being done to stop litter out because they're, they're destroying the environment. Um, it, it, it's a disgusting way to behave there needs possibly to be some education but in my view there needs to be some punishment and i i thought the best way of dealing with this bearing in mind now the registered keeper of the car jettisoning the litter is going to be responsible um is to make the registered keeper obviously liable for the financial penalty mm. but also couple that with three penalty points which will affect his insurance premiums and may move him towards a disqualification, and also engaging in at least three hours litter picking, just to illustrate to him you know, the damage he does mm. and um, to help him repair that damage and maybe disincentivise him from behaving that way in the future. Oh. Uh, otherwise, but the reality is at the moment councils literally are inactive, and um, the, these litter cams are a game-changer, but they need the correct punishment to be imposed with it. They need to run in conjunction, and just increasing the fine by itself, in my view, is not going to be the deterrent that's needed. So, you know, if you're caught, you're going to be shamed. We need to shame it in the same way that we shame drink driving. Uh, And the astonishing thing about this, Mike, is, you know, and I think we all see it, it's the same type of litter on our streets all the time. You know, there might be burger packaging, um, beer cans, cigarette cans. It's all linked to unhealthy, unhealthy eating. Um, Maybe there's a correlation between the two there. Yeah, another that, way that may be. I, I suppose it's because as well, an awful lot of people are currently eating in their cars because they go to the drive-through uh, because nowhere else is open. So it's probably worse now than it's ever been. It, it probably is worse than it's ever been, um, and maybe making the suppliers of the these, for example, burger burger bars. If you, for example, said, "Look, there is a pound deposit, and if you return this packaging to us, we will give you a pound back." The same for your can, mm. even the same for your cigarette packet incentivize people actually to keep it hand it back in couple that with proper punitive measures and measures which in my view will shame them and make them also realize the impact on the environment i think we might be able to tackle this problem because at the moment we're we're, we're woefully inadequate we're failing we're literally inactive doing nothing about it we talk the talk but we're not doing anything more than that we are a terrible country for litter though i mean i don't think i've ever seen litter uh, like we have in any other place in the world that i've ever been 
uh, and I include America, I include other countries in Europe, you know, anywhere I've ever been, they don't seem to have the same litter problem we have. It's like some kind of cultural thing that we have a problem with here. Um, and is it the case that these, because these cameras maybe aren't working yet, um, that that's why people are doing it, because they're not frightened of being caught? I think people just have a, a general lack of respect, unfortunately. One in every seven drivers admits to throwing litter. That, that's quite a high percentage. And I think there's just a, a general lack of respect for the law. It, there's been a deterioration over many years now. People think we can do what we like. I mean, the reality is that there's nobody to enforce the law. The police, unfortunately, are fairly redundant. It, it really pains me to say that, but they don't have the presence that they used to have. So people can get away literally with all sorts of things that they wouldn't have previously. And they don't, they don't respect themselves. They don't, they're not going to respect the environment. And, um, and therefore, we, we need to deal with it in, in a way that encourages them and almost compels them to behave in a, a socially responsible way. Yes. I suppose some people who would uh, argue against that would say, yeah, but hang on a minute. We, do we really want to give councils even more power over motorists? They've already got the ability to charge us ridiculous amounts of money for parking. Uh, they already charge us crazy amounts of money if we go over the parking uh, allotted time. And it's so complicated now to try and, you know, appeal the, the ticket if you get one. Um, do we really want to give them any more power over us? Um, I, I, on this particular occasion, Mike, as much as it, it caused me pain to say so, absolutely, I'd like to give them as much power as possible. The people who are jettisoning litter uh, and other de um, debris, they're, they're damaging the environment. We're, we're moving into an age now where we need to preserve the environment, we need to care for it, we need to nurture it. And these people are causing huge damage. And, and apart from that, aesthetically, it's appalling. Yeah. You, know, you, drive, you can drive through beautiful countryside and you say, how can anyone actually just do that? I don't right. understand. What are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Right. You know, what's the problem? And that's why I think incentivizing them by giving them a monetary reward for handing back the, the, the rubbish. Yes, there we see. They're always the same makes as well. Mm. Um, so it wouldn't be too hard to know exactly where you're looking um, in terms of the burgers, the coffees and the cigarettes and say, right, you, you, you give them 50p a pound for every package back. And I'm sure people will want to, particularly in these sort of stricken, financially stricken times, will say, yes, we're going to hand them back and, until we eat the next burger. Yeah, um, I mean, it's all so... about making it easy, isn't it, for people? Because the other thing I've noticed recently, and I don't know whether it's because of lockdown, because people are working more from home, but I was at the beach the other day um, with the dog and the bins at the beach were absolutely overflowing. I mean, if I'd wanted to yeah. put something away, if I'd wanted to throw something away, I couldn't because it was literally yeah. overflowing onto the promenade, you know. And I think they've got to get yeah. better, the councils as well, at making sure that when there is a litter bin somewhere, that it gets emptied on time. I think one of the, one of the big problems that we haven't touched upon, and you've just mentioned it, is the fact that the councils used to collect the bins on a weekly basis. Yeah. And, and now it's a fortnightly basis. And, you know, every time they collect the bins, the streets are strewn with rubbish because... Unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a perfect execution, mm. and some some of the rubbish escapes. Um, and I think we need to go back. And I know the councils aren't going to like this, but we need to go back to weekly collections. Mm. Uh, and then people might think, well, actually, I can bring my rubbish home, put it in my bin, or take it back to wherever yeah. and get some money back. And if they do that, they're not going to be hanging on to something that's smelly and unpleasant for a long period of time. Right. And I think in the, in the psyche, you're absolutely right. The councils can also assist by saying, right, we're going back to a weekly collection, uh, and I think that will also encourage people um, to take litter home with them, yes. or, as I say, ideally. I think they should be incentivized. I think the best way 
is the measures I've suggested, but also for the suppliers of the food, cigarettes and beer, to, to put a, a financial price on returning that particular item after it's been used uh, and they get money back. And I, th- I think m- money talks probably louder yeah. than anything else. I mean, is it possible and, that a lot of these litterers are, in fact, people that generally just don't obey the law in any way, shape or form? You know, for example, they're driving around in a car that doesn't have any insurance. They don't really care about throwing something out of it. Yeah, I'm sure you're absolutely right. They, as they have no respect for themselves, no respect for the environment, mm. no respect basically for any form of authority. Right. Um, uh, when you're confronted with people like that, you, you, you have to prevent them by measures which, which mean they are going to get caught and they're going to be punished. And I don't think anyone's going to want to spend three or four hours of their spare time or, or walking up and down the road in a high-vis jacket, being supervised, <laughs> picking up litter with no doubt with other drivers going by, peeping, looking at you and mm. saying, you're the scourge of our country. Um, that's not going to be a pleasant experience for them. And um, I think if if they did that and then they spoke about their experience, I think it would actually have a far-reaching effect and it would possibly hit the message home to other people that this is not actually a way to behave. No, of course. Um, we've all seen as well some of those videos of people chucking the litter back into the car, which are quite amusing, but I suppose we wouldn't recommend that people do that. Sadly not, because uh, a lot of these people, even if you pick your horn at them, they can become very aggressive. You can then get involved in road rage. You have to be very careful. You don't know who you're dealing with. Um, and there is a, mm. a general disrespect for authority. There are no police around. Um, so you need to be very careful what you do. Some people are incensed by what they see. And I, I understand it. And I think people who care for their environment and, and care for the country are genuinely and understandably outraged by the disgusting behavior. And, and it is the minority. Um, it's always the minority. Um, but, you know, the, the, these new proposals, I think, will make a massive difference. But I, I do believe that, that, that councils have got to go further, that, that there needs to be a point system. The financial penalty won't touch the problem. We know that in mm. terms of other road traffic offences that are committed. But points, cleaning, cleaning the litter up and a financial incentive to return. And ideally, if we lived in a perfect world, councils collecting rubbish every, every week, and I think that, that things would improve massively. No, I think you're right. Is there anything anyone can do to help out? What, what can people do if they want to see this happening? It, well, um, we can all write letters to the government. I mean, what I do, Mike, is I pick the litter up on my road every day. And I know lots of other people yeah. do that. But in, ter- in terms of encouraging the law to change, using social media, if people agree with what we're discussing today, um, you use social media, um, retweet the programme, retweet the message, and hopefully the government are listening. I mean, I have to say, Mike, I, I first suggested this seven years ago. It was in April 2014. I wrote about the cameras needing to use CCTV, imposing penalty points and making the registered driver responsible. Uh, we're moving now seven years later mm. to that. So eventually we'll catch up. But, you know, the government does care about the country. And if they're listening, that th- these cameras will pay for themselves very, very quickly. And I think it will encourage a change in attitude. So by getting the public involved, you know, we have this campaign, Keep Britain Tidy. Um, I-, I know they mean well and they can show us statistics and things. But the reality it's is not six working, councils... So- that was, six councils don't prosecute anybody, and the average council, I think, issues one fine every week. Right. And then you look at the fact that there are two million items thrown every day in the UK. It costs the taxpayer a billion pounds a year. Mm. It's clearly absolutely broken. And therefore, 
you know, six sevenths of the public don't throw litter. So why don't those six sevenths get behind it and let's sort this problem out? OK, that's a shocking number, that two million pieces of litter a day thrown. Yeah, you can't believe it. Can I know, you? absolutely cannot. awful. And, and the other thing, Mike, is that the councils no longer routinely pick up the litter. So if you have a lot of litter on your road, you either pick it up yourself or you need to phone the council and say, can you, you speak, speak to, um, it's called street cleansing, mm. and ask them to come and collect because otherwise it just isn't going to happen. Um, and what tends to happen is people just think, I'm going to go and do it myself. Yeah. And certainly that's, that's I, do, I do it every day. That's I don't expect any glory for it, but I just like... I yeah, like but you shouldn't have to. I mean, you know, it's all very well saying no, that you're going to be a responsible citizen, but you shouldn't have to clean up your own rubbish. You pay council tax, for heaven's sake. Yeah, I know, I know. But um, that, that's, that's the reality at the moment. Hopefully the reality will change and uh, we'll move towards a, a tidier Britain. Okay. Um, keep Britain tidy isn't working, is it? So it needs to change. It does. Nick, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, like me, uh, not entirely always on the side of uh, Big Brother, not wanting people to be under surveillance. But in this particular case, two million pieces of litter a day is outrageous. I mean, there is literally no excuse for chucking litter out of a car. You just shouldn't do it. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Sorry. <laughs> I was just um, reminded that we still can't find the proper version of Plank of the Week, I'm afraid. If you haven't heard the story yet, stick with me because we'll be telling the story in some detail uh, when we film the new Plank of the Week. Uh, but right now, let's talk to James Chiaverini, director of Il Portico, London's oldest family-run restaurant, because I didn't know until today uh, that it is indeed British Pie Week. So uh, let's talk about pies uh, with the man that makes some of the greatest food I've ever tasted. James, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mike. Very nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. Now, I didn't know that it was um, uh, it was Pie Week uh, here in, uh, in this country. So uh, what have you got for us? What are you going to make? Well, I mean, I didn't know it was it was either. I mean, pies are one of those things which is just so perfectly British. Yes. It's cold outside. It's wet outside. It's damp outside. You've got the fire on. You've got your kids around the table and everybody just falls silent when you put a pie in the middle. Mm. It's just one of those dishes that everybody loves. Yes. I think that you can't beat. And the old school, what I love to do with for my wife and my kids is do what my son calls the desperate Dan pie. Right. Which you remember those pictures. Of Absolutely. Dan yeah. Like cow pie cow. or something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The whole cat with the tail out on one side right. and the horns on the other. Yeah. And my, my son loves it when I do a version with lamb shanks, which right. is basically so simple. If you've got a crock pot or if you've got a slow cooker or a casserole dish, if you don't, no worries. You stew your lamb shanks in there with some mushrooms and some, um, and some lovely herbs yeah. and uh, potatoes and uh, a bit of and wine, maybe. Celery. Yeah, bit of wine until it really just until that that sinew starts to soften and the meat starts to fall off the bone. You chill it down, and then all you got to do is literally just move the lamb shanks into a pie dish vertically, so the bone sticks through. So it's like the desperate Dan Horns. All right. Roll your pastry over the top. Your all butter pastry is very important to only get all butter pastry, so the the bones poke through. And then you just put them in the oven, roast them until until the, the pastry is nice and golden, take them out of the oven, and everyone just libs it. All my kids just grab grab a bone, pull it out, and love it. They just love to just munch in it with the pastry. Oh, it's just delicious. Wonderful. Kids love it. That's great. And where are you on the whole pastry front? Because some people quite happily will just put pastry over uh, the, pat, the, the, you know, the pie dish, if you like, rather than making it a proper pie where the pastry is all around it. 
Yeah, I'm very much pastry only on top personally. Really? Okay. Uh, my wife loves it the other the other way around. She loves the pastry underneath. She goes, "Oh, it's not a proper pie. You don't make it that way. You're too Italianizing everything <laughs> in my family." You know, I like I like the meat. I like the the comfort of the casserole dish and everything all stewed in together. And I like just enough crunchy pastry just to mop up the gravy on the yeah. plate. But you know, now, for people there, for people good. who haven't made pastry before um how easy is it to do uh should they buy it ready made what do you think see it's it, apparently it's quite easy to do that my wife makes it all the time mm. i'm i mean i i just buy it to be honest with you i honestly can't tell the difference in good or quality all butter pastry yeah and yeah. one that's made in home i find it very difficult to, to tell the difference yeah uh yeah. you can make it yourself if you've got if you're that way inclined um, but I do think that the supermarket stuff is actually one of those things. It's a bit like the yeah, the stuff you can roll out. I think it's just as I mean, because it's, it's why why waste time and, and and energy on that? Yeah, yeah. And the nice thing about pies is that you know you can chuck it all in a casserole dish or in a crock pot, like I said. Yeah. And you can go and you can go and do something else while it's all stewing. Absolutely you know, so right. Otherwise, now, otherwise when, you when you now, I'm I'm sorry to be a bit of a pedant here, but when you do the pastry on the top, do you brush it with some egg uh, yolk as well? Yeah, always, always brush it, and I always like to crimp it as well. Cut a little bit of piece off so you can do a little bit of decoration on it. Yeah, brush it with egg yolk just gives it a really nice golden crust. Yeah, and that's what that's what everybody loves to see on a traditional pie. Yeah. Now, something I have never tried to make uh, is steak and kidney pudding, which obviously is a different kind of dish. It's a suet pudding. Um, yeah. And again, I presume I don't know whether you've ever made that, but is how how different is that? Would that does that count as a pie? I presume it does. I guess so. Do you know what, Mike? I've never made it myself either. I grew up on it as a kid because my grandfather, like like all of our parents and grandparents, came through the war. Right. And and a lot of that stuff was very, you know, very much still in vogue. Steak and kidney pudding. Yeah. Irish stew. A lot of those. A lot of those foods. Great pub food, isn't it? Friendly. Yeah, it's pub food. It's simple. It was cheap to buy because nobody wanted the kidneys. You know, at the local, at the locals, at Smithfield's meat market, and as a consequence, you know that's what we're all brought up on. But it's one of those foods that's just kind of disappeared off the radar, mm. and I haven't thought about it until until you mentioned it just now. To yeah. Be you, Mike. Well, maybe you could put it on your menu the next time I come over, and uh, yeah. I may, I may well, have to. I reckon it. it'll be an absolute. I reckon. Do you know what? All these things now. I mean, it's all just a cyclical thing, isn't it, Mike? Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love a pie? I, I know. mean, really. It's like it's like a bowl of pasta. And, yeah. You know, you will struggle to find anybody in in the in the you know in the globe who doesn't love a good pie. Right. You know, the only thing I struggle with is a fish pie. I used to have a friend who uh, who used to have me around for dinner, and his wife would make fish pie, um, and I used to try and be as polite as I possibly could. But somehow there was something wrong with eating a fish pie, whether it had like a potato topping or whether it had yeah. uh, a pastry topping. I just didn't like it. Do you know what the secret is to a nice fish pie, Mike? Is you need lots of fresh milk. But if you are forced and you do want to stay friends with your with your with your, with your friend's wife, right. you know, it might, it might be a good idea. <laughs> I put lots of bechamel and lots of peas and onions in my fish pie. All right. And I think, I think that really makes a difference. Yeah. Otherwise, it can be a little bit on the bland side. Yeah. Now, talking of Italian food, because that's your other heritage, what about something like lasagna? Could you describe that as a kind of Italian pie? I mean, some people in America call pizza pizza pie, don't they? <laughs> yes they do unfortunately yeah um i no, not really because it's not covered you see it's just a, it's just like a, a cooked like layered dish like a moussaka is so i mean for me a pie always has to have a covered top in it and then you sort of dig into it you know to, to um yeah. you know you know so i can't i wouldn't really i mean italians don't really do pies to be quite honest no i mean the french kind of do don't they 
I don't, yeah, I guess they do. Yeah. But I mean, it's more like kind of a very rustic kind of like, you know, countryside. I suppose it's more kind of British and Irish, isn't it really? I suppose. Yeah, I think so. I think it fundamentally comes down to, um, you know, what your heritage is. Yeah. I mean, you think about the English were the, were the, one of the first countries in the world to go through the industrial revolution. Yes. So their, their food really, uh, their food culture changed dramatically because of that. They right. left the, they left the fields and the homesteads farms to really go and work in factories or down mines. Mm. And that's why things like the Cornish pasty came out. I was going to say was, the Cornish pasty was originally for miners, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's probably why we have such a rich pie heritage. Yeah. It's because it's one of those things that, that you could make in advance or make the day before, and then you could take to work with you down the mines or in the factory. Yes. I mean, my father and my, uh, and his brothers, my uncles all came to this country to be miners up in Yorkshire. Oh, really? No, sorry, not Yorkshire. I'm sorry. And the Lake District in yeah. uh, in. Uh, or Derbyshire, yeah, yeah, or as my dad still calls it, Cumberland, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and they used to take pies with them every lunchtime. They would make their own Italian British pies, yeah, and they would take them down the mines with them, and that would be their lunch. Brilliant! I'm I'm now massively in need of a pie. I have to say, you, you've, you've absolutely <laughs> whetted my appetite for it because I mean, my, my both my kids are actually really good at making pies, which which um, yeah. which I don't really do very much of, but they've mastered it. Uh, you know, and, and, and they do the lattice work sometimes on whether it's an apple pie, because, of course, we haven't talked about the sweet pies as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Italians make something called a crostata, which is very similar to a pie, which is just an open fruit pie mm. almost. But instead of having a cupboard like an apple pie would traditionally, yeah. you just have cross lattice works over the top with your what the Italians call pasta frolla, which yes. is basically like a, a butter pastry. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, and my kids just go nuts for that. Absolutely. Mm. Not. I mean, who doesn't love the combination either in a sweet way of uh, baked flour, starchy carbohydrates and sugar, or yeah. in a savoury way, sort of unctuous meat, fatty meats and, and starchy carbohydrate pastries. I mean, it's just a winning formula for everybody, isn't it? It really is. Speaking of winning formulas, budget day tomorrow. Um, what are you hoping yeah. for from Rishi Sunak as a, as a restaurant owner? Well, the big thing that we need is the three dreaded initials that every business owner hates to hear is VAT. Yes. I mean, everybody can't stand it. I would personally be happy if he wants to raise corporation tax. He's got to, if he wants to take away from us that side, he's got to give us something else. He's got to cut VAT for hospitality. He's got to freeze beer duty for the pubs. And then if he wants to raise corporation tax in one sense... You could argue fair game because you're raising it on your profits. You're mm. not, you're not, you know, but let us get to profit first. Let us make our money, get to profit. And then what, whatever's left over, then we can divvy it up with the tax man. I think that's fair. Yeah. But this year, yeah. everyone's going to struggle to get to profit. And the quickest way to get us to get a profit is slash VAT, slash beer duty. You can't bring back business rates. That's just going to be an absolute disaster. And I mean, there's already so much bloodletting on the high street that business rates will just absolutely kill off any semblance of a recovery. Yeah. And yeah. then we'll worry about corporation tax once in January when we all have to pay our, our pay our profits. Um, but yeah. VAT is the big thing for us. A five percent VAT for hospitality would be huge mm. because don't yeah. forget, Mike, that pubs and restaurants can't can only claim very few things back off the Batman because right. there's no VAT yeah. on food when we buy it, but there is when we sell it. So our VAT bills are extortionately high every quarter. Right. And just when you think, oh, lovely, I've just got a little bit of buffer between me and the overdraft, bam, you know, you've got to submit again to, to, to HMRC. Yeah, I know. It's an absolute nightmare. And as far as the opening date you've got in mind, the last time we spoke, I think you were hoping for uh, April the 8th. Are you still looking at that? So we are opening come hell or high water April the 12th. 
April the 12th. That's what we decided right. we're going to do. We called it April the 12th, outside only, very secure, very safe. Mm. All our staff will be there. We'll be there with bells on. We'll be there well, willing and, and happy to welcome you in. The government's latest um, pavement licences have been a great thing so that we can extend either side of us in the evenings. So most restaurants now should absolutely be applying for those pavement licences now so that they can open up April the 12th. April the 12th, Monday, the right? I'm putting it in the diary now. Yeah, Mike, I will see table you there Monday. Four. Mike, I will see you there Monday. You'll, you'll absolutely have a table for you. Fantastic. And, every and we need to hit the ground running, Mike. That's what we need to no do. No problemo. I'll bring money. I'll bring plenty of it. Don't worry. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Brilliant money stuff. Helps. Of course. James, great to see you. Good luck with it all, man. Uh, we'll see you in April. James Chiaverini. Uh, what a great recipe for uh, for a pie. I'm, I'm gonna have, just going to have to have a pie now. I don't I, I don't know what to do about it. I'm going to maybe have to go to Borough Market. I've got to recall the Thought Police. I may have to have a pie first because it is National Pie Week after all. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio.